Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today by Shannon Foley-Martinez, who is a consultant with Peril. Uh, Shannon, it sounds like a supervillain organization. What, is it, what does it mean? It's, uh, it stands for the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab. So part of the thought behind it is that, you know, that there's academic research that we need, but so often by the time that that academic research is peer-reviewed and comes out, that it's not relevant anymore to what the landscape actually looks like. So this is focused on a, you know, learn by doing approach. Like let's put what we believe to be best practices in place and then practice them and then learn through success and failures as we go. So at Peril, you're looking at things like youth polarization and extremist radicalization. I guess um, maybe you could give us uh, where your expertise in that comes from. Sure. So from when I was 15 until I was about 20 years old, I was a neo-Nazi white supremacist skinhead. I'm 46 years old now. Uh, so, and I've been so I've been out of the movement for over 25 years, and I also during those 25 years after I left have had seven kids. So my life has my adulthood has been spent. You know, how do you raise children who will never look to hate or violence as an expression or an answer to anything that comes their their way through life? So and and I also you know because my past is my past that I have lots of people who reach out to me who are trying to, you know, leave these worldviews, leave these spaces, and also families who are deeply concerned working with teachers and local agencies and training even like law enforcement, um, trying to be like, you have to identify the white supremacists in your departments <laughs> and get rid of them. Like that, that is a very, that that is a very crucial step to, to dealing with what we're seeing here. It has to be not unclear whose side you are on. And so, yeah, so that's like, that's where my, uh, you know, my whole jam comes from. Is, is having, uh, children, was that part of your process of creating a new life? For yourself after you left the movement and 
What were the circumstances that made you feel like you wanted to leave? The idea of having seven kids and it being part of a plan <laughs> is ridiculous. I'm, I'm just like, I'm the world's worst contraceptor. I've even gotten pregnant like after having surgery to not have any more babies. So that was not like, it was not part of a plan, but as, you know, like as it has happened, my oldest is about to be 23. Um, as it has happened that, you know, trying to become a healed whole and, you know, non-dysfunctional person to be able to raise children who thrive and are emotionally well and healthy, that that has turned out to be a huge part of my healing and the motivation to continue to heal and identify spaces that still need need work in myself and to model being a transparent work in progress, which I think actually turns out to be really important for kids to see the adults in their life, be able to say, I'm a work in progress. I actually don't know what I'm doing. And clearly what I did has hurt you. I'm sorry. Let's figure out a way to move forward better. <laughs> I actually think that that's really an essential thing that, that kids need as they mature into adulthood. But when I left, I ended up moving because I moved all over the place while I was uh, still part of the white power movement. And I ended up at one point not really having anywhere to go. And I was taken in by the mom of a guy that I was dating who was also a white supremacist and who happened to be in the army. So like totally not a new problem at all. Probably like 30 of my contacts while I was in all, were all military. But she took me in and let me live with her and her three younger sons. And in essence, because my stuff was all before the internet. So the echo chamber that I lived in was like a physical echo chamber. When I moved into that house, I essentially that my echo chamber got, you know, really kind of like busted up. So like, every day, all day wasn't just only around other people who were spewing this ideology all the time. At the same time, it, my life began to be filled with other things that you know, there were, she had two 11 year old twin boys and a nine year old son at the time when I lived there. And so like I started, you know, doing stuff like fishing and camping and throwing the football in the backyard and helping around the house and, you know, starting to like put things back into my life where they hadn't been. And I don't, you know, like, it'd be much better storytelling if there was like a single like, aha, like, I'm out. But it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was probably like over the course of probably about four or five months or so where as my life was being filled with other things and I had this place, you know, in this family where they had, you know, there was no reason for them to take me in. They just, they just did and let me be part of that family. It wasn't, you know, like I had to like help around the house and stuff, but there wasn't, you know, that it was the closest thing to unconditional acceptance and love that I had probably ever experienced in my life at that point. And in that environment that my ideology began to fade away. And I think I realized probably about four or five months after living there, like, I don't believe any of this stuff that I was doing. And I really have to figure out what what to do and how, how to move my life forward and, you know, and began to take some steps. 
began to take some steps to do so. So it was like in that environment where that disengagement began to happen. And I started to think in terms of future again, like what do, you know, where do I want to go? What do I want to do with my life? Because while I was in, it was, everything was very hyper present that I was living a very violent life. All my, most of my relationships while, while I was in were violent that, you know, there was always fights and, and all, you know, lots of, lots of violence that I was immersed in. And so I didn't, I didn't think of future, like personal future in any way other than what could I do in terms of the movement or whatever. But my personal future had just completely fallen away. So I began to take steps to think about that. But I will also say that, you know, so a lot of times stories like mine get told and it's said like, oh, well, you know, it's like with empathy and compassion, like that's, you know, that that's how people are able to leave these worldviews. And, you know, and it's so much more complicated than that. Like to me, number one, it's irresponsible, especially to like for the for my former like targets and victims of my violence. See put the impetus on them to have like love and empathy out, you know, anyone from any kind of like hate or violence based worldview. Like to me, I'm just like, that's like asking an abuse victim to just love and empathy, the abuse out of their abuser. So I think that's kind of like, I, I, I think it's far more complicated than that. What did happen though, was that, um, I, not only dehumanized other people, but in the process of doing that, that I myself became dehumanized. Like I became less than human myself, that all of the empathy that I had, because as a kid, I was hyper empathetic. I was actually like very like anti-apartheid and really like cared about injustice in amongst my friends and in school and stuff like that. And then while I was in involved with all this stuff, my empathy got completely turned inward. So that it included like myself, the immediate group of people that I was around and by extension, sort of like the white race, like who the perceived in group that I had, all of my empathy was turned inward. And when I was living in that household, and I believe that because that empathy is completely like turned inward, that that is that empathy is really what makes us human, our ability to empathize and feel the pain and struggles and even joys and triumphs of other people, that that's really a fundamentally innate part of humanness. And while I was living in that household, that that process began to be reversed. That So I began to be rehumanized where my empathy was now a, expanding back outward to a world greater than just myself. But I will also say that it wasn't just like I woke up one day and everything was great. Like I was still a mess. Part of my story, like ending up in all of this stuff was that I, can't, I grew up in a really dysfunctional household and there was sexual assault, you know, when I was 14 years old and that was like completely unprocessed. And, you know, so it was like, as I was leaving and I was disengaging from all of this stuff when I was, you know, 20 years old, that stuff was still there and still unprocessed. And I still didn't even know that I needed to address any of it or 
you know, gain better skills and tools. So I was still a mess of a human being for a long, long, long time that my life was, you know, I was no longer immersed in hate and violence, but my relationships were all really dysfunctional and I did not have good, you know, emotional skills and tools. And when my oldest son was born, when I was 23 years old, you know, that, that for me, that that was a point where I was like, okay, I have to like, I really have to like figure out how to learn some of these skills so that I, you know, when I, I had never even changed a baby's diaper when he was born, I only knew that I didn't want to raise my kids the way I had been raised and that I never wanted them to be me. Like I never wanted them to be like me. And so that began really like my intense journey of, trying to heal and I don't think it was until around that time either that I really began to reflect upon so like you know a three-year to four-year gap to really reflect on like well how how did I like end up in a white power movement like how did that even happen what what was going on for me that 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 even made that something that was possible And, and coming to terms with you know, this wasn't, it wasn't just like a period of my life or whatever, but that I actually hurt and harmed other human beings coming to that stark realization so that I could begin the process of healing and get to the point of trying to make lifelong, ongoing, meaningful amends. How did you go about starting to make those amends? Like, I can't imagine that that would have made you very popular with some of your former comrades. You know, for me, it was before the internet. So a lot of all of my stuff happened in a physical space. And at some point, I ended up moving out of the the house where I had been living with this mom and her kids and went back to school and went to college. You know, I never I never ended up graduating. So in the interim between leaving and having my oldest son, I actually had two other babies that I gave up for adoption. Again, like my, you know, my life was a disaster. (laughs) I was, I was not, I was very, I was not a very put together young woman. So when my oldest son, when I was pregnant with him, I was like, okay, like I can't, like the heartbreak of considering like giving another baby up for adoption just like crushed me. Like I was just like, I can't. And so luckily his dad was just like, okay, well we could try, like we could try to, you know, I was like, okay. And that was like all I needed to hear was like, let's just try to be a family. At that point, like I was so physically distant and I was like not even part of any of the movement or any of the, I didn't associate with any of the people that I had formerly um, been around. So it wasn't like there was an immediate threat to my life or, you know, I didn't feel like a sense of danger in that way. You know, one of the things I do think that's, you know, borrowing some of the ideas around like 12 step programs of recovery for drugs and alcohol and stuff like that are useful here that like part of the process, you know, and I think a lot of people who leave want to skip over this part of the process. That part of the process is like coming to understand the, the nature of the wrongs that I had done and like that coming to real terms with like, wow, like I really, you know, I, I hurt other people and talking to, to other people about the things that I had done. And, you know, when it began, it was just people really in my close, like intimate circle of family and friends talking about like this part of, Hey, this was like part of my life or whatever through doing that 
and sharing really the worst things that I've ever done and the, you know, the worst things that were done to me, people felt safe to share their worst things with, back with me. And so that became just sort of a modus operandi for me, for me to live like really just transparently imperfect and share my struggles and share bad parts of my life and who I was and had been and the mistakes that I would make. And then that just sort of expanded outwards. And as I was doing that, that like part of, you know, another part of like 12 step programs is like to make direct amends where to do so doesn't cause more harm. All right. And so I think a lot of people that are coming, you know, out of stuff like this, that that is a part that they, they want to get right to the amends making. But if you don't do all the other healing work first, that you are limited in your ability to really understand if you're going to actually do more harm than good with the amends that you're trying to make. And so for me, especially early on, that that amends making really looked like community service for me. How do I, how do I get active in my local community and support people and organizations and give of my time and things like that. You're listening to Yeah Na Passaran on 3CR 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Shannon Foley-Martinez, a former neo-Nazi who now helps people get out of the movement. You've been helping people exit the movement or reconsider ideas for quite a few years now. What are the things you've found that have stayed the same? And what are the things, if anything, that's that's changed over the last 20 years? So obviously, one of the biggest changes, of course, is that is the internet, right? <laughs> so that, that has been, that has definitely been a game changer. There's a thing called ACE scores. It's called Adverse Childhood Experiences. And there's a bunch of research around this. It's an ongoing body of research. And what this shows us is that the more traumatic experiences that children have, the more likely they are to have less than optimal outcomes of all different kinds. The more likely they are to be physically ill as adults, the more likely they are to go to prison, the more likely they are to be drug or alcohol addicts. So there's, you know, so it's ACE scores of four or higher. Um, there's like a short form that's 10 questions. And now they've expanded out to include more questions about, you know, about your, your childhood experiences and stuff in some of these studies. If you have a score of four or higher, it's a direct correlation to all kinds of less than optimal outcomes. And I have come to view hate or violence-based worldviews as one of these less than optimal outcomes. So, you know, it's the more trauma and the more bad things that happen to somebody that are piled on as they pile on, the more likely they are to look to these less than optimal outcomes to either cope with their needs not being met or to have the closest illusion that they are offered to feeling like these like basic sort of emotional needs are being met. For me, it was actually very unlikely that I would collide 
with this particular worldview or whatever, because it had to happen in a physical space. I had to meet another human or have a physical book or a physical record or CD put into my hand where these ideas were. I had to encounter them in in real space. It was actually very unlikely that I would collide with this and then take off down that trajectory. But now with the internet, that um, and like going, you know, I speak and and present at a lot of schools, everything from middle school up through university. Uh, and when I ask young people about their internet habits, and you know, it's like, are you on Twitch? Are you on, you know, like, are you on TikTok? Are you, you know, what, you know, where, where are you at? And then ask them if they've encountered racist or anti-Semitic comments or content online every single hand goes up. Like it's really close to a hundred percent everywhere that I've gone. And of course all the adults in the room are like, their jaws drop. They're like, no way that my middle schools, you know, my middle schooler has like, and I'm just like, no, they totally have. One of the big game changers is that it's almost certain that people will collide with these ideas and with these worldviews. And, you know, and so that is a humongous, humongous shift that uh, that has changed. One of the things that hasn't changed is that some of the things you know also identified in some of the ACE score studies and uh, some other areas of of research are that there are things that we can do that better inoculate people against ever finding resonance. So, like even if they're are traumatic events and like, you know, things like divorce, you know, parents divorce, parents, you know, drug or alcohol addicts, not, you know, not having meaningful connections, being bullied, all the, all, there's all the, you know, all the, all of these things that, that kind of sort of stack up or whatever, that there are also inoculating factors. People often use the term uh, resiliency, but I have a lot of uh, autistic folks uh, in my life and that they have said that they find the term resiliency to often be used in a sort of weaponized and ableist way. So instead, I I have tried to use the term inoculating, that things like a meaningful relationship with unconditional positive regard from like one other adult in a child's life can help inoculate them against the likelihood of these like less than optimal outcomes or whatever. So the internet definitely is a game changer. I think one of the other game changers too is that life has changed a lot and you know that there's economic factors that are real like in America wages haven't really have remained pretty stagnant whereas the cost of living has increased exponentially and the percentage of income just to that's needed to go just for like transportation and housing and medical care and stuff like that has has risen exponentially so the adults are way more stressed out and not as present you know kids spend way more time at school, like the school years now, like 180 days, which it was like way shorter when I was a kid. So I think that that is definitely, that is definitely a factor that, you know, kids see way less of their parents and not because parents are doing anything wrong. Like they're just trying to survive. Like there's no judgment here whatsoever. But in terms of just like things that have changed, like those are things that, that have changed. Job opportunities, the cost of education, the debt that people enter into adulthood with the realities of looming climate 
catastrophe thing like things like that i think are are also things that have that have really changed and that all of those things lead to a world in which young people you know that they carry a lot of anxiety and stress and fear and and those are those are all things that if you don't have the skills and tools to be able to healthfully express and manage and cope with that anxiety and stress and fear that that, you know, I mean, any of us who's, who have ever been stressed out know that that often does not lead to the best behavior that we know we have in us, right? Like we're way more likely to, you know, snap and yell at somebody or whatever when we're stressed out than if everything is like awesome and we feel, you know, we feel really great. So I think that that is also, that those are also things that, um, that are sort of like happening in the backdrop. And then I also, think that there's something that is going on as well with the internet where social change used to happen much more slowly and organically where it would you know start on the especially in America it would start on the coasts California New York City and stuff like that and it would begin to filter inward to the bigger cities in America and maybe at that point a cause or you know social change that needed to happen would be championed by an influencer by somebody making movies or a musician or uh, an actor or actress and that 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 social change would then begin to be interjected into you know media and, and so by the time social change got to like say this farmer in Iowa the social change movement had a sense of cohesion so like the terms would already have been hashed out and there'd be basically agreed upon definitions there'd be a basically agreed upon sort of agenda and even like what change was being asked for by the time it got to middle America that it was kind of like that it was kind of like okay here's the change that is being presented to you with the internet, social change is now happening in real time. It's happening as we're watching it. And there is no even, there is no cohesion that there's a general sense of the social change that's being presented there, but we haven't agreed upon definitions and terms. Like you can even, even if you just ask five different people what racism is, you're probably going to get five different answers. If you ask five people what intersectionality is, you're almost definitely going to get five different answers. If you ask people if one particular event is racist, you'll probably again get five different answers. That there's, you know, that there's this real time consciousness awakening or whatever that's happening. And I think that that is causing a lot of unrest and, uh, you know, that and confusion and stuff too that 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 is part of what is happening right now too that some of the real implicit parts of the status quo and again I can only really speak about America you know but some of the the power structures that are so innate in our country and its perpetuation I mean are being deeply deeply challenged right now and that is both obviously unsettling on a societal level, but I think also in, you know, smaller personal level ways and community ways, like the way that we have done things is based on an unfair, you know, unfair systems of oppression and perpetuated oppression. But we're kind of collectively at that point where I was at, as I was leaving 
uh, the white power movement where it's like, but we're still a mess. Like we still don't have the skills and tools to like move ahead functionally and healthfully and wholly and, and well. So I think that those are some of the like big key differences. I think another thing that has really, really shifted, like you'll hear me talk about, like I was part of the white power movement. And there is definitely a hard shift away from movementarianism where there isn't some sort of like cohesive or even really easily identifiable movement in terms of fascist and fash adjacent and white supremacist, you know, movements. And it's much, then there's a definite shift to more like a worldview and that that's all overlapping with ideas of just bringing about societal collapse so that we can bring forth whatever comes next, like, you know, accelerationist stuff and, um, and that there isn't one cohesive worldview. Like there isn't, there isn't one cohesive end game at all. And lots of overlapping, um, sort of like micro ideologies. And even that, even that, even the idea of it being an ideology, I think is something that we're, that there's a big shift away from as well. Uh, so that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much for joining us, Shannon. If people would like to find you online, where could they do so? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and uh, you can find my website, which I think is, this is how bad I am at self-promotion. I don't even know my website. Um, I think is Shannon Martinez Speaks. Dot com. So you can it find is. me there if you have concerns or questions about a loved one or, um, you know, how to help your kids uh, have, you know, better skill set to be able to resist uh, all this stuff. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Well, that is all we had time for in our discussion with Shannon Foley-Martinez, but there is more if you want to check out the podcast version of this show. You can either go to 3cr.org.au slash yenapasaran or check us out on Apple Podcasts. Just look us up. Global Intifada is up next. Catch you next week. Goodbye. Going back to what you were saying before, Shannon, about you know the kinds of people that are attracted to white power and involve themselves in the movement and the changes that have taken place over the last few decades, I guess one of the things that I've understood to have been happening in the US and elsewhere is there's also a, a kind of cohort of political activists, and I'm thinking of people like Richard Spencer and others who've uh, who who did. They may not be in that position today, but we're exchanging the boots for suits, and we're presenting a very different, or trying to present a very different image of the the kind of cultivated racist who's you know well read and well dressed and polite and, and I guess, presentable, and yet at the same time is still presenting very similar ideas and pursuing very similar goals to the neo-Nazi skinhead who, who does it in a much more kind of crude and direct fashion. So what's your, your understanding of this kind of, I guess, more middle class and establishment uh, image that's being projected by segments of the white power movement in the United States? Um, so... And again, like this is, this is specific to the U.S. because this is not necessarily true in some of the places, uh, in some other places where there are still ties to working class support that's tapped into that I would say in the U.S. overwhelmingly, the people that we're talking about being at highest risk, um, are actually middle class, uh, upper middle class and upper class, uh, 
you know, mostly white kids and young adults. So when I was, I, I, I think I left like around 1992, 91, 92. And it, during that time, that's when that shift actually began to really happen that, um, that there were, you know, that there was a lot more talk of like, Hey, everybody, like, let's like try to mainstream a little bit more. Like let's, you know, grow out our hair, join, you know, the military, the police force, government jobs, teaching jobs. Like let's, you know, let's be part of the community and create influence from inside. So that's been something that's been happening for for quite a while. I will say in terms of, you know, the alt-right and into like the grouper sphere that, you know, to me, like the alt-right is just completely dead at this point that they've largely accomplished. I mean, some and some of that is like were was affected by uh, Charlottesville and the aftermath of that and all the lawsuits and, and things like that that happened. But they've also, because they were, they really wanted this to be a political movement. They really wanted to have political legitimacy and have representation that way. But, and, and so they've all sort of like fallen apart and have lost influence. However, I will say that most of the ideas that were being put forth and purported by those who were self-identified and also, you know, identified as alt-right, that those have been largely been subsumed by mainstream conservatism at this point, that you will hear mainstream conservative um, politicians and uh, influencers and stuff like that talking about um, conspiracy theories of, you know, the great replacement and stuff like that. So that, you know, on the one hand, they have functionally sort of fallen apart. And on the other hand, those, the ideas that they were putting out in terms of, you know, sort of mainstreaming some of this stuff are really part of the mainstream here. Like you can turn on, you know, you can turn on the news and you can probably hear some sort of conspiracy theory about, you know, white, white supremacy or, you know, some of the related and adjacent things that are, that are out there in terms of, you know, whether it's having to do with black Americans or having to do with Jews or, you know, or whatever. Um, so that's, there's that whole landscape of stuff, but I will also say that there is a whole other contingent of folks over the past at least decade that have arisen that want nothing to do with that iteration of any of these worldviews. And, you know, and I'm thinking about in terms of Adam Waffen and the base and, you know, whatever splinter groups they all splinter off into and the rebranding and the new names and the, uh, you know, the, all of that, that they have absolutely no desire to be part of the political process. In fact, like electoralism is seen as antithetical to what the, you know, what the, what the future state should be or whatever. And that as things socially continue to be in such upheaval here, that I believe that that is the largest growing sort of contingent of, uh, of these uh, worldviews. With uh, fascism, you also find often anti-fascism. Do any of the people you speak to 
getting out of the movement or out of this lifestyle credit Antifa with uh, helping them on that journey? It's going to, like, it'll depend, right? Like, that there, there are definitely people who I have worked with who really amplified their commitment to trying to distance themselves and build, you know, begin to build their life as a body of evidence of fundamental change out of the reality that there's a likelihood that they could be doxxed. Um, and that their information and the posts that they've made and stuff will be made public. Uh, so in terms of some of that, yes. I don't, I don't, not so many in the way that I think that you're thinking. But I think looking back, um, as they gain distance, that they will see like, oh, okay, like these people that were, you know, were instrumental in sort of reaching out and connecting me with resources often also had politics which align with you know what what we deem as antifa you've been engaged in i guess what you might call de-radicalization or exit work for a while i've started calling it deprogramming because i see it more okay i see it kind of more like that um you know i don't know i I also (laughs) i kind of i think radicalism gets a bad you know gets a bad name like i don't know like i think that there's definitely definitely uh, you know, radicalism can be a really great thing. Like what we're really talking about is, you know, is is in terms of like fascism and racism and violence and hate and things like that, that we, you know, like, so, and because especially with, you know, when you're talking about some of the more, um, you know, talking about like QAnon and you're talking about some of the like esoteric Hitlerism stuff that's out there, um, that you're really talking more about, sort of 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 like cult mentalities and and cultish behavior so i've shifted my my per, my personal speech to talk more along the lines of like deprogramming you know how do we how do we reset your brain how do we get new new neural pathways fired how do we entrench those neural pathways how do we connect you with the things that will help you begin to attach your thoughts and life to things that aren't destructive and hurtful. That's a, a very good point. But it, I guess in terms of, to reframe the question, uh, in terms of the deprogramming, what are the things that are missing from your work and that of others that you think, if were present, would really assist you in helping people leave the movement? <sighs> um, money, <laughs> for sure. Um, I, um, yeah, so, because I, I, like, I mean, at this point, I, you know, I work 10 to 12 hour, uh, bar tending shifts, um, you know, most of the week. So I work, you know, most of my time is, is spent, you know, doing, doing that. But yeah, so definitely funding. I think also one of the things that would be so much more helpful would be for people who are already set as support in communities to have better information about, you know, for lack of a, you know, for, for lack of ease of talking about it, but for what this like radicalization into hate and violence like looks like, what it entails and um, some basic 
understanding and knowledge and information about how to support people as as they're leaving that. So when I say that, I'm thinking about like educators. I'm thinking about social workers. I'm thinking about probation officers. Um, you know, the p- psychologists, counselors, family counselors. That like thinking about the people who are already in support roles in the community who are most likely to encounter people who are exhibiting behaviors that are part, you know, that that are indicative that this is part of somebody's life and that they are in the process or already deeply uh, entrenched on this, you know, on this trajectory for them to have a better familiarity with like what that looks like and like some of the things that can be done to help better off ramp people, especially especially earlier on in their trajectory when it's much easier to to off ramp people when they haven't invested so much of themselves, um, and their empathy is still easier to uh, to refocus outward, and, and then in terms of like when people have left, like helping, you know, having that information in, you know, community support structures already about, okay, like, what are the things that are actually like helpful to help people, you know, as they, as they walk away and rebuild their, their lives. And, you know, because like one of the things that, that I think is super overlooked is like, I, I will have a brain that is wired the way it is wired for the rest of my life. Like, I can't undo my childhood trauma. Now there are things that I can do to help heal it. There are things like I can grow in awareness when I'm operating um, out of like a trauma response rather than, you know, and I'm perceiving things around me as a threat or I feel, you know, that, I, that, you know, that I'm responding in like a, in a disordered, you know, stress and trauma response. But I'm always going to have a, propens- a propensity to, towards trying to, embrace simplistic black and white clear with clearly defined sorts of rules for negotiating life i'm always going to have a propensity for wanting to attach to those things and there's all kinds of ways obviously there's like not not everything is equally bad right like somebody somebody attaching to crossfit and a keto diet as this way of like coping with their stress obviously is like Far better <laughs> than becoming, a, you know, a violent white supremacist or whatever. But I'm always going to have the propensity for wanting to grasp onto things that make simple the complexity of negotiating through the world. Um, because that's just, I mean, that, that, that's how my brain is. So it's something that I personally have to be vigilant about and recognize how I'm interacting with things. Even if those things are not harmful at all for other people, they could be for me. That if I am approaching religion and I am doing it from a standpoint of like, I need these really rigid rules for living so that I can adhere to them perfectly. Well, like, even though religion is, you know, the practice of religion is, you know, is not, is a net good for so many people, practicing religion that way for me would not be a net good because I'm functionally utilizing it in the same way that I was utilizing hate and violence-based, you know, worldviews and stuff. And so getting some of that information and how that the healing from this isn't just like I'm not posting, you know, like I'm not shit posting anymore, or like I'm not sharing memes anymore or whatever, that it's like 
that's step one. Like the disengagement process is step one. But for me personally, I'm like that. I don't feel like that's enough. Like I want everyone to thrive. I want everyone to gain healing and wholeness and wellness. And a lot of people when they leave think, oh, well, I'm done now. And it's like, well, no, you're, you're done that part. But if you don't continue to examine and work on your healing, that there will just be other harm perpetuated, whether towards yourself or towards others, because you haven't really yet understood the sickness it is that you have. You only understood one of its symptoms. Um, and so that for me, like getting that information to people and parents, like for me, I, I wish I could, you know, talk to parents uh, you know, like this is like, we're not powerless. Like your kid doesn't have to grow up to be a 17 year old that like murders, you know, other protesters or walks into a church or a synagogue or a mosque and murders, you know, dozens of people. Like there are things that we can do to much better inoculate our children against finding resonance with this stuff much, much better. But it does require that we don't externalize the threat and say like, oh, well, not my kid. Um, not me, not my family. We have to say like, well, my kids are at risk for this. And what can I do to, to help better inoculate them? Because again, they will encounter these ideas and this material. Um, and we just have to accept that as a fact. So if we want to actually, you know, begin the journey of making sure that this doesn't become our, our children, then we have to first acknowledge like that this can become our children.